0: Let me tell you about a felon name, and I'll probably butcher his pronunciation, Jean Taurel, that's the French pronunciation, so Israel, you can correct me later. But uh, Jean Taurel was born on September 6th, 1698, and entered the French army at 18 years old. And that's not a big deal. Our selective service takes you at 18, right? But how many soldiers do you know have a military career that spans 75 years. And that's not 75 years as a diplomat or some sort of retired general. That's 75 years as a private. A private. You see, he never wanted to be promoted. Instead, he wanted to serve with great devotion, his country, the country that he loved. His life spanned three centuries. He was born under Louis XIV and died under Napoleon in 1807 at the ripe old age of 108. He was a committed soldier and was disciplined only once in his long career. It was at the siege of Bergen, In 1747, the French, who had taken control of the citadel, had shut the doors and he was on the outside. Fearing that he would miss muster the next morning, he scaled the walls and was disciplined for his commitment. He had his fair share of war injuries, including six slashes from from a sword to the head, another to the body, and once took a bullet in the chest. Once his regiment was ordered to make a grueling march to the sea. As an older man, he was offered a carriage because there was no way he could actually make the jaunt. Yet he refused and trekked the entire way with his company. He was 88 years old. He believed so much in his beloved country that he gladly, with great joy, led a life of devoted service. And because he led such a consistent life, he was always at the ready when hostilities came. Think about it. He's the only veteran that spanned 75 years of war. He was involved in every single one of them. You say, well, why do you give this illustration? Well, that's the kind of faith that will be exemplified in our character today, and that's exactly the kind of faith that this first-century small church of Jewish Christians really needs—the the kind of faith that is that is at the ready, that's already in use, that is so committed that it doesn't have to gin up commitment. It doesn't have to really, really, you know, put their best foot forward or, or, or chin to the wind. But it's it's a faith that is in action, in use. It's always at the ready, especially when hostilities arise. We've been looking at some specific illustrations, some great examples, character sketches. I remember when I was a kid, my uh, parents had bought this very, very expensive book called Character Sketches, and it had wonderful paintings in it, and it had sketches, if you will, not only in pictures, but in word of famous men and women based upon their character. And that's what we have in chapter 11 of Hebrews, the hall of faith. It is a character sketch of faith, all different types, but the faith that is the assurance of things hoped for, the what? Evidence of things not seen. And so we'll look at one aspect of faith and we'll say, oh, I get that, yep. And then we'll look at another character over here and he has a bit of a different aspect. We've spent five weeks in this. We've taken one word each Sunday. How long can Hebrews continue? If you're sure, sadly, she hopes for years to come. But as we already have the doctrine under our belt from the first ten chapters, I think it's been helpful to slow down a little bit. I think it's been helpful to revisit these older characters one by one. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 34. And let me read the text again together to refresh us. This is the word of the Lord. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, "...of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight." And so I was looking at at these all-too-familiar descriptions here. And if we look at Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David, well, it just makes sense because those characters invoke images of conquering kingdoms, shutting mouths of lions, escaping the edge of the sword and putting foreign armies to flight. But then there's Samuel. (laughs) Samuel and the prophets, it says. How does does Samuel fit this description? Conquering kingdoms? Putting foreign armies to flight? Well, it appears that he doesn't. But if you look a bit closer, there are two descriptions here that encapsulate his life almost perfectly, and it's easy to overlook them. Look at verses 33 and 34 again, performed what? Acts of righteousness. Performed acts of righteousness. And then the second one, from weakness were made strong. From weakness were made strong. And I don't know if that's exactly what the author was thinking about when he included Samuel in there, But I started to explore it this week, and I said, hey, for sure there's a connection there, more so than the other ones. And these two characteristics seem to mark Samuel's, watch this, lifetime of faithfulness, a lifetime of devotion. I mean, from the time he was just a boy in the temple, he performed acts of righteousness. As he grew and spent his adult life, decade after decade, it seems that he wasn't a particularly strong person, but from that weakness, he was made strong. And he became the the guiding, the, the center anchor, you might say, for Israel. When they start going off this way, he's like, no, this is the word of the Lord, stay true. When they want a king, he warns them and says, No, you will be rejecting Yahweh, the king of heaven. There are consequences. He's the steady Eddy. And so I want to let those two descriptions be our guide as we look at the faithful service that embodied Samuel's life. And I think this is what the Hebrew church needs. You know, they're being bombarded by persecution They're they're being bombarded by peer pressure from their friends, from their family, former synagogue, a corrupt pagan government, Nero. They've got friends and sister churches that have, well, they've even lost their, their lives, people they know. They personally have lost property. They need some steadiness. They need to look at a character where. A guy has had decade after decade of faithful devotion. Because right now, they cannot seem to be faithful with everything coming their way. So think about that. In fact, you might write down a life of faithful service where Samuel did two things. And I, and I got specific here. One, he served God's people. Samuel served God's people, decade after decade. Secondly, he spoke God's Word. Samuel spoke God's Word. I'm not going to break these apart today, because we're just going to flip back and forth. But turn, if you will, back to 1 Samuel, and let's look at this life of faithful devotion together. 1 Samuel... Let me set the stage for us. The year is around 1100 B.C. The nation of Israel was a ship who had lost her moorings. Adrift in a sea of self-absorption, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Samuel is the last judge. And 1 Samuel comes upon the scene, but not with Samuel, but with A woman, a barren woman, a barren woman who is distressed. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Her name is Hannah. Now, this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to worship the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When it came that Elkanah, that's Hannah's husband, sacrificed, that he would give portions to Penina, that's one of his wives, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. Can you imagine what This must have been like. Those of you who have struggled with infertility surely can. But this, this takes on an even darker hue because there's competition in the home. There's two women in the kitchen. I mean, think about it. The whole family packs up in what's sort of a 12th century B.C. homeschool van. All the kids, the two wives, they go on the yearly vacation. They're going to Shiloh. It's the highlight of the year. They rent a big home. Everyone laughs and plays. The kids run through the streets. They eat together. They see cousins and friends. And Penina gets to show off her brood, the fertile myrtle that she is. She does the peacock strut down the streets. Oh, yes, you know my children. There's Judah, who's 15. There's Zechariah, who's 14. And so on and so forth. And Hannah's there with nothing, no diapers to change, no runny noses to wipe. She's probably in the back of the bus. No one's calling Mama for her. And the pain is even made more obvious because Penina becomes her nemesis. It's something about this year that sort of brings out the worst in her. And so the scene opens with a kneeling woman, weeping bitterly and pouring out her heart to the Lord. Her spirit is crushed. She had wanted this for the longest time. It seems like for an eternity. Maybe, maybe sometimes for the wrong reason. But why couldn't she have a child? Why had the Lord prevented her? But this time, it, it seemed different. The prayers seem to take on a different tone. O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me, and not forget thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. What? Did you hear that prayer? Did you hear the, the difference in tone? If thou wilt, thy maidservant, thy maidservant, if thou wilt, I will give him back all the days of his life. Now, how many of you mamas could let your five-year-old go live in the temple and see him once a year? Feel the weight of it. She knows exactly what she's promising here. This is not a vow made in a, in a rash sense, in just a moment of, of, of desperation. No. Because when she has him, she names him Samuel, because I have asked him of the Lord. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. We fast forward four, maybe five years. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him year to year. And she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. How big do you suppose that robe was? Can you imagine? That's not what's so amazing. How many five-year-olds minister to the Lord? I mean, can't you see him? He's going around and he's doing his little duties. He's, He's serving Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And he sees his mother once a year. I think that's amazing. Well, the Lord would give Hannah five more children. But in verse 21, we have this unique little phrase as we start to study Samuel. It says, and the boy Samuel grew before the Lord he grew before the Lord now watch this progress turn to chapter 3 verse 1 we're going to start to see connection in these phrases chapter 3 verse 1 now the boy Samuel was what ministering to the Lord before Eli you start to see the progression and the word from the Lord was rare in those days visions were infrequent the boy Samuel grew The boy Samuel grew before the Lord. The boy Samuel is ministering to the Lord. Visions were infrequent. God's not even talking to the high priest, but he's going to talk to a little boy who believes. We're not going to go through it now, but you remember the story. Samuel! Samuel! He rolls out of bed, puts on his little robe mom made him, scurries down the hall and he says, yes, sir. Yes, Eli, what, you, what, what do you need? Now, can I just stop right there? What five-year-old works like this? What five-year-old gets up in the middle of the night and goes and sees his boss because he thinks he's being called? I had a hard time getting teenagers out of bed, right? Verse 9, Eli says to Samuel, go lie down and it shall be that if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called as at other times. Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak. For your servant is listening. I could stop right there. That first century Hebrew church could say, Preacher, you made your point. I got it. The kind of faith you're asking for in the midst of adversity is, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. What do you have for me? Because there's two things there, isn't it? Speak, Lord. I know your word will carry me through. And when I say, Lord, I'm saying, you are Lord of all my circumstances. Even my trials. Even my persecution. And we could stop there. But it gets even better. Look at verse 19 and see these phrases start to come together. Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fail. And so we have, even at a young age, a converted boy who is serving God's people and speaking God's Word. Serving God's people and speaking God's Word. He is living a life of devoted service. Serving God's people and speaking God's Word. Let's look at some of of these instances throughout his life and see if we can't start to build a character sketch of what this looks like. Turn over to... 1 Samuel chapter 7, and look at verse 3. Samuel's an adult now. Then Samuel, what? Spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, and remove the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone, He will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. Samuel, living at a time when everyone who did what was right in their own eyes is speaking truth, speaking the Word of God. He's spending his life speaking the Word of God. And he's also serving God's people. Look at verse 5. Then Samuel said, "'Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will,' what? "'Pray to the Lord for you.'" Verse 6, "'They gathered at Mizpah and drew water.'" And poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And there they said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. We have to realize what's going on here. He is ministering to God's people by not only interceding for them, praying to the Lord, but then giving up his time and using the Word of God to judge them. Just like Moses did, to help settle their disputes to take the Word of God and provide wisdom on what they should do, how they should do it, calling them to repentance, but then walking with them through the process. How do we say it here at Metro? First Thess 2.8 Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the Gospel, the Word of God, speaking the Word of God, but our very lives serving God's people. You cannot have one without the other, can you? You know, how many guys out there, I'm going to pick on my profession here for a minute. How many guys out there have the title of pastor? But they don't know their people. You can't be called a pastor if you don't know your people. Hebrews 13, 17 says, We as elders are going to give an account for those who have been put in our care. And I almost want to say, You know, you're a pastor, but all you're doing is preaching. Don't call yourself a pastor. On the flip side of that, how many are preachers and preach it well and pastor well but don't actually hold themselves accountable with other elders? Help me grow. Help me continue. Let me lay my sin before you. Both are required, speaking God's word, the preaching which is important, and serving God's people. And here we see both, one after another. They seem to flip back and forth. Look how he serves in worship. Let me read it for you. Samuel took a suckling lamb, verse 9, and offered it for the whole, as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. What is he doing? He's serving God's people. He's praying for them. He's also serving with them, serving them, leading them in worship. So let me start to bring this together, because I'm going to show you how we connect the dots. And if you're a first century Jewish Christian who has pushed away from the church, who has forsaken the assembling together, who has kind of quit answering the calls, not showed up for discipleship, doesn't come to prayer group, and and frankly just thinks, if I can just blend into the background, maybe the persecution will go away. If you're that kind of guy, Samuel connects the dots. Who did God know before the foundation of the earth? Whose womb was closed? God knew Samuel before he was even formed in the womb. He set his affection upon him. At some point, he saved him. He drew him by his word. And he saved him and he converted him. And then what did he do? Through orchestrating circumstances... And through the unction of the Holy Spirit, He put Him into service. Not just temple service, but service of speaking God's Word and serving God's people. Do you see the connection here? Let's just go ahead and skip over the first century Christians. Metro Bible. Did God know you before the foundation of the earth? Did He know you when you were being formed in the womb? At some point, did He use the Word of God? by the Spirit of God and draw you to Him and grant you the gift of repentance and faith? And did you respond by saying, Yes, Lord. And did He put you into service? The kind of faith that Samuel has is the same kind of faith that we have. Do you know the singular difference? He's living it daily. It's his very profession. And it should be ours. The preacher of the Hebrews is saying, faith is not a spiritual band-aid for tough times. It's a life. It's a life lived in service to God. It's, it's something that is in continuous use. When I was in my 20s, I had a friend of mine who wanted me to learn to play squash so we could have matches over lunch. And I thought, how hard can this be? I grew up playing tennis. I played racquetball. It's just a smaller racket. Smaller ball should be the same, right? Not so easy. Not so easy. If you've ever played squash, you know there's some inherent challenges. Primarily, the ball. You see, the ball doesn't bounce until it gets warm. The ball has to be warmed up. It has to be hit several times. It has to be moving. It has to get kind of hot so that it will bounce. And when you hit it, it will go. It's not unlike our faith. You see, Samuel's faith is already warm because it's in use daily. It's used to being moved around. It's used to taking hits. He doesn't have to say, okay, now it's time to get my faith going. No, his faith is in use. So therefore, when the hits come from the world, he's able to bounce back. He's able to respond well. Do we want a kind of faith that is consistently warm? I think we do. I mean, just practically, I'm looking at this, it's like, I don't want to have to go find my faith when I need it. I don't want to have to psych myself up to endure rejection. Samuel's faith seemed to always be warm, always be ready. Let me show you. Turn to, uh, look at verse 15, chapter 7. Let's make some notations here. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. So what, what does this tell us? One, judging God's people, meaning interceding for them, speaking the Word of God to them, serving God's people was something he did his whole life. It's just it's what he did. It's who he was. And he did it not only all the time, but he's, he's even got like a, a, a concert circuit here, you know? And he goes from this city to this city to this city, and when he's not on tour, what does he do? He set up an altar where he lived. And he did business there. He did business with the estate of people's souls. Simply put, Samuel didn't wake up every day and say, do I, do I feel like speaking the word of God? I know I've got it on my calendar to serve God's people, but I don't know that I really feel like it today. You see, he removed the small decisions in his life. And frankly, this first century church and our 21st century universal church has a tendency to live by small decisions. Samuel's decision was one big one. The Lord said, Will you serve me all the days of your life? Yes. Yes. We have a tendency, on the other hand, of asking ourselves Do I feel like it? Do I want to go through with my plans today? Do I want to meet with that person today? Do I want to go early to church? Do I want to go to church at all? Do I feel like it? Should I tend to my sniffles? Should I speak God's word because it might ruin this relationship? The point is is we're overburdening our faith by making our faith one of small emotional decisions. Samuel, on the other hand, his decision was, I'm in the service of God's army. What's the little, I may never, y'all kids know that? Soldier in God's army. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. What a boring LinkedIn page. You ever think about that? Let's look up Samuel here. 1100 BC, entered temple service. Position, spoke God's word, served God's people. Present, still judging Israel after 60 years. It's Pretty boring, right? Not the God. Can I tell you what ours should sound like? Pick a date. 2004 entered God's service when He saved me. Joined a church, found an older person to disciple me. Speaking God's Word and serving God's people. Present day. This should be the norm. I know God moves people around. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about this is the norm. You see, being a Christian not only talks about our estate, but it talks about what our profession is. I am a Christ follower. You want to hear the Apostle Paul's LinkedIn page? I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Folks, is, is our faith cold and weak because it's not in use? Is, is it like that squash ball that, that doesn't bounce because sometimes there's days and even weeks that go by that we exercise our faith? Because in those moment-by-moment moment decisions, we're saying, yeah, not the best time. I'll wait for a better opportunity. I'm kind of tired. I'm not feeling well. That person, it may hurt too much if they reject me. You, you see where I'm going with this? I'm preaching to myself here. That's one reason why we've been really pressing all of us to have weekly gospel conversations. I had two this week. You say, well, pastor, shouldn't you be having about like 10? Yeah, I should. I should. But I'm growing in this area too. I had two. And I'll tell you, by human standards, the opportunities were not there. But by divine standards, they were breathing and they were on the phone with me. And I took them. And I didn't regret it and it wasn't so hard, and when you're kind, it's really hard for someone to be nasty. Guys, I've got fraternity brothers calling me now who have had no interest in spiritual things for decades, who I wasn't even necessarily that close to, and when they get sick or they're struggling, they're calling and saying, can we talk? Can I tell you, that's not because of me. Those are divine Ephesians 2.10 opportunities. And if I ask myself in the moment whether I want to do this, I will for sure say no. But if I ask myself, what would Samuel do? Then I have to say, well, the faith is already up and running. I might as well use it, right? I mean, I'm really liking this guy as I study it. I wrote something down here if you want to just go doctrinally deep for a second. If you find yourself asking a lot of in-the-moment questions on whether you want to do this, want to speak God's Word, want to serve God's people, then you have forgotten both your former estate and you don't realize your current one. Let me explain what I mean. Paul writes in Romans 6, But thanks be to God... That though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That brings it all there. If, if we're making, if we're even asking ourselves those moment-by-moment decisions on should I serve, should I speak, then we have forgotten who we once were and who we now are. We were slaves of sin, and now we are slaves of righteousness. You might say it this way. We were enemies of God. Now we're that soldier who spends a lifetime in service. Doesn't that bring perspective? But I need to warn you, as I'm sure someone warned Samuel, God's Word is not always either easy to speak nor received well, as was the case with Samuel. Chapter 8, verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. So Samuel's in the position where the entire congregation of Israel is being disobedient, rejecting God, feels like they're rejecting Him, and he is speaking the truth. And he is warning them. He's warning them of the consequences of an earthly king of rejecting God and how that king will take your sons and daughters as servants and your fields and your livestock as taxes. Verse 19 of chapter 8, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. He's human. It hurts. No, but there shall be a king over us. That we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us. We don't want you judging us, Samuel. You use too much Bible. We want a king judging us. And we want him to go out before us and, and fight our battles. But he spoke. He spoke the Word of God. And sometimes speaking the Word of God was warning of consequences. Paul describes it in Colossians 1 that we present every man, we admonish every man, we warn every man, that we use the Word of God to talk about both the blessings of God and warn of His judgment and the consequences. It's part and parcel of both the formative and corrective teaching of the Word of God. And so Samuel became discouraged and fell silent like the Hebrew church. Is that what happened? No. Chapter 8, verse 21 now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. <laughs> <laughs> he loved these people enough to say, I'm not giving up on you. No, 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 I'm going to keep preaching the Word of God. I'm going to keep lovingly warning you, encouraging you, directing you. Not this way, the way you're going. Follow God. He is your King. And you know what? He still doesn't give up on them. Look at verse 23. Moreover, As for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. It's easy for us to look at a judge and a prophet and a great man and say, yeah, well, he can do this, but my situation is different. My family hates me. My friends mock me. Don't think it was any different at all. Samuel is human. This is painful. We know it's painful when you read the context. But you see, he was in the service of the king of kings. He was in service his whole life. He was devoted to God. And so therefore, he didn't let those things, though they hurt, take him out of service. He kept speaking God's word and serving God's people. You say, well, Rob, practically, what is that that like? What is that like for us? Well, it's just like it was for Samuel. He was teaching the Word. He was encouraging with the Word. He was using the Word to to apply truth to make wise decisions. He was warning them with the Word. He was ministering to them. He was serving with them. He was praying for them. He was bearing their burdens. And he was long-suffering when they were obstinate and didn't listen. Hey, I'm going to keep praying for you you think that would be enough. And by the way, next time we meet, I'm going to remind you of the Word of God. I don't like you very much, Samuel. That's okay, I love you. And actually, I love God more, which means that my love for you is godly, not selfish. How was he able to do that? His faith was warm. It was being used daily. Simply put, he did not have a category for asking himself, in the moment, whether he wanted to do it. It was not an option. He said, Well, I never thought of Samuel that way. Well, I'm not sure I did either. Let me leave you with this one. Speaking God's word and serving God's people sometimes took on some pretty tough opposition. Turn to chapter 15. King Saul has been given explicit instructions to destroy all the Amalekites for what they did to the Israelites during the Exodus. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. There's a whole background sermon on this. I can explain why they were put under the ban. This was a rare occasion. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and they were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, well, they utterly destroyed. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Now watch this, and Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord God all night, The first century Christians are having their faith tested from their friends, from their family, from a pagan government. Samuel doesn't have that persecution. Samuel's persecution is coming from the very king he himself anointed. From his highest authority on earth from the commander-in-chief of the army that is with him. For Samuel to have to go toe-to-toe with the king could cost him everything, even his life. Samuel was distressed. and He cried out to the Lord all night. And here's the thing. If he's going to make a momentary decision, There's lots of noble ways you can spin this. Well, I'm going to reason with the king respectfully. Well, I'm going to tell him what God says and and then just let the Holy Spirit move. I'm going to suggest some alternative things that we can do to make this better and make it right. And the questions that are running through our minds as we're reading this will he kowtow? Will he do these things? Will he simply overlook the offense? What if he stands in obedience to God? What does that even look like? This is King Saul. He'd sooner kill you, he's going to try to kill his own son-in-law. You see, he doesn't ask all those questions. He takes it to the Lord. Verse 12, and then he obeys. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. Verse 14, Samuel sees Saul and says... What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Using the word of God, Samuel pulls rank on Saul. Why have you disobeyed? Verse 15, Saul, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. That's the way our kids say, Oh, but I have obeyed. Let me show you how I have obeyed, partially. Samuel cuts him off verse 16. Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord has said to me last, last night. Verse 17. Is it not true that though you were little in your own eyes, that you were made head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission. He put you into service. Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Verse 19, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Verse 20, I did obey, blah, 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 blah. It's worth reading. Let me show you how Samuel serves God's people in obedience when they would only disobey. Verse 32, Samuel says, in the king's hearing, bring uh, me Agag. Actually, Saul had just tried to grab his robe. Samuel pulls away. It rips. He says, your kingdom is torn from you. Samuel barks out to someone and says, bring me Agag the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. He says, I got one commander-in-chief, and Saul, your Not it. Was it because Samuel was a tough guy? Was it because he had the strength of Samson? Was it because he had the fearlessness of David? No. It's because his faith was warm. It was active. It was running all the time. He was speaking God's Word daily. He was serving God's people daily. When the opposition came, when the persecution came... The faith was there. It was in use. His is not always the kind of faith that bests giants or, or puts armies to flight. But it's the one you don't worry about on whether it's going to start on a cold morning. It's a warm faith. Because his decision to serve God was made a long time ago. And there's something for us here. In this day and age of consumerism, And multiple choices for every moment. Do I want to? Do I feel like it? It's a good thing Samuel didn't have emojis, right? You got to go talk to Saul. Sad face. You're going to have to take out Agag. Really, really sad face. Multiple sad faces. I mean, I don't know. It's just like, no. No. But here's what I want to leave us with. We look at Samuel the way I've described him, and we say, I get it. I get it. He's not a superhero. This is a life of consistency. This is a life of devotion. His faith is active. It's always working. It's warm. He can do these things because he's used to it. He's not asking himself how how he feels. But Rod, that just seems too hard. Or maybe you're saying, even if it doesn't seem too hard, It doesn't sound too fun. Let's just be honest, right? I want to leave you with an argument, an argument that I wholeheartedly believe. Samuel enjoyed life more than the richest man in the kingdom. Samuel not only enjoyed God, not only obeyed God, he loved life. Do you know why? he was not constantly anxious about what decision he would make. He didn't spend time every day wondering, should I do this? Do I want to do this? How do I lie to get out of this? I don't feel like doing this. He didn't do it. His life was one of a clear conscience. And as a result, he delighted in serving God. He enjoyed it. I'll promise you, his food tasted better. His wine tasted better. He enjoyed his kids more when they were younger. He enjoyed his walks. He lived the life that we're supposed to because he wasn't questioning, should I I serve? Should I speak? Should I do this? Will it cost? No. He's in the service of the Lord. Lord, you just tell me where to go. You tell me what to do. I trust that if an enemy is in front of me, he got past you first. All I'm supposed to do is respond. And so I want to leave us with that. That's very much a Westminster Confession idea that obedience is not drudgery. Obedience is delight. And it's enjoying God forever. And because you're not having to worry about everything else, you really do enjoy life more. So... I'm going to close this in a minute here. And I'm going to pray that God would give us a warm faith because we're using it all the time and because we're not asking ourselves how we feel. And then we would look at Samuel and say, we can do that. I don't have to be in a temple with a little robe, but I can do this because he's purchased me and put me into service.